Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33 and finish up the chapter. Our context is this. In the first 20 verses of Ephesians, of Ephesians 5, Paul has been exhorting the Ephesians to moral purity. Some basic exhortations to fly right. Now, here in our section 21 through verses 21 through 33, he's going to take up one of the three hierarchical relationships he's going to address, that of husband to wife. In chapter 6, he's going to talk about master and slave, parent and child. Here at the end of Ephesians 5, he's going to talk about husband and wife, and he's going to make a pretty tight analogy between husband and wife and Christ and the church. So we take it up in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now actually this is the end of the last sentence, which is verse 20, and you might wonder why I broke it off in the middle of a sentence. Well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Here's the previous sentence in verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, I don't immediately see the connection with giving thanks for all things. Verse 19 says, Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit and be subject to one another. What's that got to do with verses 19 and 20? And yet almost all the translations put be subject to one another right there in that same sentence about not getting drunk, about getting drunk in the Spirit and not with wine, about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what's going on here? And when you read what follows verse 21, it's all about the husband being submissive, the wife being submissive to the husband, the child being submissive to the parent, and the slave being submissive to the master, which is exactly what verse 21 is about, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So it's kind of interesting. Well, I did some research on that as to where that verse should be connected. Should it be connected with the previous verse, verse 20, not being drunk with wine, being filled with spirit, and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Or should it be connected with verse 22, which is about wives be subject to your own husbands? Which way should it go? Well, I'm going to give you two options as to why it should be connected with the previous verse, verse 20, rather than, verse, rather than the following verse, verse 22. And I suppose this is why most of the translations connected with verse 20 rather than verse 22, even though the idea seems to more tightly fit verse 22, that which follows. Well, here's option number one as to how to connect it with verse 20. It's connected with verse 20 in grammar. Ellicott says this, in grammatical construction, this clause is connected with the preceding verses. In point of idea, it leads on to the next section. So grammar holds it to verse 20 according to Ellicott, but now... Here's a, an opinion that says that actually the submission, submission idea, be sub, subject to one another in fear, in the fear of Christ, that idea is actually contained in verses, in verse 20, in the preceding verses. So let's read that comment from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Quote, the 21st verse, which seems to belong to a different line of thought, in reality, completes the foregoing paragraph in the Corinthian church, as we remember with its affluence of spiritual gifts. There were so many ready to prophesy, so many to sing and recite, that confusion arose and the church meetings fell into disedifying uproar. 1 Corinthians 14, 26-34. The apostle would not have such scenes occur again. Hence, 
when he urges the Asian Christians to seek the full inspiration of the Spirit and to give free utterance in song to the impulses of their new life, he adds this word of caution, being subject to one another in fear of Christ. He reminds them that God is not the author of confusion. So according to this opinion, Paul says, sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, but don't sing them so much that you stomp on each other and submit to one another. Well, that's an interesting idea. I don't believe it for a minute. I believe it's just, the, I don't know what the grammar is, but I, I'm going to assume with Ellicott that it, it's connected with the previous verse in grammar, but the idea, the main idea is submission, which is what the following is about. So that's, we're going to go by the context here and, and talk about being subject to one another. Now, the first problem we have when we talk about being subject to one another is how can we all be subject to one another in the body of Christ. If one another means individuals in the church, that means a master should be subject to his slave, a husband should be submissive to his wife, and it means parents should be submissive to their children because it's one another. Well, sure, children are submissive to their parents, but one another means the parents are submissive to their children. And that, my friends, makes absolutely no sense at all. Well, how do we solve that little problem? This is the typical way to solve it, and I don't believe it. I don't think it works, but this is the NIV Study Bible. It says, merely to have a conciliatory attitude to one another. It doesn't mean be subject to one another's authority, because obviously a master is not going to be subject to a slave's authority. So it doesn't mean subjection in authority. It means subjection in attitude. So each individual in the church can be submissive to another in individual in their attitude. Actually, that makes sense. I, I don't believe it. I used to believe it. I used to, but until I saw a different interpretation, that's the only way I seemed to, to I could deal with that. Here's what John Gill says, agreeing with that opinion. Let no man be so tenacious of his own will or his opinion in matters indifferent as to disturb the peace of the church and all such matters. Give way to each other and let love rule. In other words, just have a decent attitude when Paul says, be subject to one another. Now, if this is what it means, this actually makes the superior-subordinate relationship better, of course. Take the example between the aristocrats, the relationship between the aristocrats and servants in Downton Abbey, if you saw that wonderful masterpiece theater show they respected each other the servants loved the masters and the masters loved the servants mostly with room for individual differences but as a general rule they loved each other they respected each other they looked out after each other despite the fact that they were not subject to each other now feminists like to use this interpretation and it's not just fem feminists that hold this interpretation, but feminists like to use this interpretation and say that, see, therefore, there are no hierarchical authority relationships. We can't have a wife being subject to her husband. Oh, no, it's got to be egalitarian. And so that's what this means here. It means subject to one another in attitude. So a husband and wife should be, should be solicitous of each other's feelings. They should have proper respect for one another, not that one should be subject to one another, not that the wife should be subject to the husband. Well, even on this view that Paul is just saying be subject in attitude, not subject in authority, Paul is saying nothing about hierarchy. He's not saying anything to support the hierarchy or destroy it on this view. The reason it says nothing, it would be saying nothing about hierarchical relationships is because let me give you an example. Let's say that we have one wife and she's supposed to be subject to another man's husband. Well, obviously not an authority, but she could have a good attitude toward that other man's husband. So it's talking about a conciliatory attitude, but not as husband and wife. And therefore, the, and so therefore, we see on that view 
that Paul is saying nothing about hierarchy, whether it's good or whether it's bad. He just says that everybody ought to have a good attitude toward one another. So you can't use a feminist interpretation to break down the authority of the husband over the wife on this view that Paul is merely saying have a good attitude toward one another. Well, I don't believe that that's what Paul's talking about. I believe what Paul's talking about, he's talking about groups, not individuals, who are subject to other groups. So when he says be subject to one another, he's saying all you wives be subject to your own husbands, group to group. All you children be subject to your parents, group to group. And all you servants be servants to your masters, group to group. Therefore, you are subject one to another. That makes a lot more sense. That preserves the hierarchical relationship as well as the honor and the attitude, too. This is John Gill's view of it, and I think he's right. So now we go to verses 22, 23, and 24 of Ephesians 5. Paul says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now here Paul launches into his analogy of Christ and the church and the husband and his wife. I will point out that Paul goes back and forth. Sometimes he takes the natural marital relationship and uses that as an example of how Christ and the church is, and sometimes he takes the example of how Christ and the church is and relates it back to the marriage relationship. So the analogy is going to be very, very close. Now that word here, be subject to your own husbands, it means obey. The Greek word is hupotasso. It's used for several hierarchical relationships. For example, a military commander over a subordinate, as the NIV Study Bible says, parents over children, master over slave, Christians to God, Christians be subject to God, master, uh, slaves be subject to your masters, children be subject to your parents, soldiers be subject to your commanding officers. It's a strong word. It means to obey, to be subject to. Interestingly enough, it's not used for the relationship of elders to believers. And I've done a lot of research on this because of studying church government and the, and, uh, the leadership in the church and how I believe in non-hierarchical leadership of elders that they should lead by example not by hierarchical authority, and they should the uh, believers should be persuaded by the elders, as unfortunately the King James in Hebrews, where is it, Hebrews 13, I think it is, where it says, obey your elders. Well, that obey is pisterio in the middle passive voice, be persuaded by your elders. So that idea of hierarchical authority is not present in a church between elders and believers, but it is present in military commanders over subordinates, parents over children, masters over slaves, and Christians, and God over Christians. Now, that word, be subject to, of course, drives the hyper-egalitarian people in our modern-day culture crazy. Christians are embarrassed by it. They ought not to be, but they are because they're wussy pusses. They've compromised with the culture. I remember it used to be non-controversial to say this 50 years ago, but not now. Oh, see there, Paul is saying that it's all right for a husband to beat his wife and abuse her and kick her around the room. Well, how do we avoid the possible abuse of that word subject to? Well, some say it does not mean obey. Well, I just finished showing you that's exactly what the word does mean. Hupatasso, it does mean obey. I don't have the quote of the particular scholar who said this, but he says, in fact, the word obey does not appear in Scripture with respect to wives, though it does with respect to children, if you read in chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 5, tries to lessen it a little bit. Children and slaves, yeah, they're supposed to obey, but not be subject, but not wives. Well, 
That's a huge problem with that because the word means obey, as I said. Why are you going to make a special exception here? Well, those who want to make an exception are those who are affected by modern Western culture. They use special pleading so they won't have to fight that culture. Well, let me, let me give you a better way to limit possible abuses. And, of course, all authority can be abused, including that of a husband over his wife. Well, first of all, the husband... Well, first of all, we submit only in the sphere of authority commanded by the superior, the sphere of authority. In the marriage relationship, the husband, that's his sphere of authority. He, but in other relationships, for example, the spiritual relationship of a believer to God, he has no authority. He cannot tell his wife, I don't want you to worship God, as Madame Guillaume's husband famously tried to do, and he would watch it or see if her eyes would ever close. So she had to pray with her eyes open. Well, that is an abuse of authority, and no wife should submit to it. Likewise, no wife should submit to some husband beating her. She ought to get a gun, put it between his eyes, and say, one more slap, and the trigger gets pulled. Of course, I know women don't have the psychology to do that. A lot of them, I've watched enough of these Lifetime movies where women are abused by their husbands and such, and, and it's more complicated. They feel like they love him still, and they got to submit to it, and they just get beat, beaten down. It's just, I don't think like that, but I'm not a woman. I don't think like a lot of women do, but a lot of women have trouble. They, they, want, their, they want their man to protect them, to be strong, but at the same time, when the man becomes strong and becomes abusive, well, then they have trouble shifting gears and saying, no, I don't want that. But anyway, no man has got any right to do that to his wife. He can't, watch, he can't command her to watch pornography because that interferes with her relationship with her God who says, don't watch pornography. Well, that's the first way to limit abuse of a husband's authority over his wife. The second way to limit it is to note that Paul himself, in this end of this chapter 5, in the beginning of chapter 6, in the three hierarchical relationships he talks about, he himself guards against abuses. He takes the person who has the higher rank in the hierarchical relationship and admonishes him to be careful with his authority. For example, Ephesians 5.28 talking about husbands. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, a husband who loves his wife is not going to ask her to watch pornography, to rob a bank. He's not going to beat her. So he chastens, he warns or admonishes husbands who are in a position of stronger authority. He admonishes fathers who are in a position of strong authority over their children. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And as for the third hierarchical relationship, slave, masters over slaves, he, he warns masters in Ephesians 6, 9, And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So Paul himself is aware that the authority can be abused, and he limits that authority. Now, notice this, be, wives be subject to the husband. Now, that is probably referring to situations in which the wife disagrees with the husband. Of course, with two human beings, you're going to have disagreements especially when you consider male and female psychology. I like to go to these marriage seminars, and one thing they say is men have a long-term relationship, and they like to gamble, excuse me, not gamble. They like to invest their money and take risk that deal with the future so they can hit it big in the future, whereas wives, they want security, and they want it now, and you took our money that we were going to buy a sofa with, and you spent it on a stock. <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff comes up all the time. Well, of course, the husband needs to listen to his wife and and... And, and weigh her opinion, but bottom line is, if the wife disagrees with the investment, the husband makes the decision to go along with it, well, it's, she needs to submit to that decision. 
And if the investment goes sour, she needs to not say, I told you so. That's just basic marriage 101. On the other hand, if the, if the investment hits it big, she should say, wow, honey, aren't you a great husband with such foresight? <laughs> At best, she should keep quiet if the stock goes bad. I mean, you know, I told you so. Yeah, that's really going to make for marital harmony. Well, that's being subject in areas in which the wife disagrees. But how about if the wife has no opinion and a decision has to be made? Well, the husband needs to make the decision. He, he, he can't wait on his wife and say, well, come on, honey, you tell me what the option is. What, what should we do? It's his job to lead. It's not the wife's job. If she has no opinion, the husband needs to man up and make the decision. Subjection should be an honorable good thing, but modern feminism has turned it into an evil. Notice that here... Paul is assuming a godly Christian husband, and it is a good thing for a wife to submit to a godly Christian husband, just as it is a good thing for yours truly to submit to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I submit to him because he's a good good husband, to use the analogy. The more a woman can find a godly husband, submission becomes quite easy when you find a real godly Christian husband. There are a few men out there. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if you can find a reliable man, I can find you a mother pig that can climb a tree. They're hard to find, but they are out there. I remember my youngest daughter found one, and I was scared to death they were going to have some kind of argument or something and break up before they got married. So I called up my daughter, and I said, Y'all still going to get married? You had a fight yet? No, no problem. I said, Well, don't. I said, Don't let this one get away, because reliable men are hard to find. And, of course, she submits to this guy because he's a good husband. It's an easy thing if, you, if, you, if everybody's playing by Jesus' rules. Here's an idea of how Christian submission of a wife to a husband should be. This is from John Gill. Her head, being wholly dependent upon him from Jesus and entirely resigned to him. Excuse me. This is the wife being wholly dependent upon him, her head, and entirely resigned to him and receiving all from him from whom alone is all her expectation of provision, protection, comfort, and happiness. Wherefore, she has respect to all his commands and esteems all his precepts concerning all things to be right and yields a cheerful, voluntary, sincere, and hearty obedience to them, arising from a principle of love to him and joined with honor, fear, and reverence of him. Boy, wouldn't you like to find a wife like that? Put that in your pipes, evangelical feminist, and smoke it. You find a husband who provides for his wife, protects his wife, comforts his wife, makes her wife happy. That wife is going to honor that man and respect him, and it's not going to be any problem about submission. Here's what Adam Clark says. The husband should not be a tyrant, and the wife should not be the governor. That's to put it in short, simple language. Now, in verse 22, we read this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, that word own in there actually is not in the earliest manuscripts, but it's not necessary because obviously Paul doesn't mean for a wife to submit to another man's husband. Now, that has actually come up. I, some people have gone taken the idea of submission and saying that a woman in a church should sub, submit to another man in the church if he decides that there's some conflict and the other man says, well, I'm going to make you submit. A bologna sausage. Nobody's going to interfere with my a relationship with my wife if another man wants to say something to my wife he can talk to me first but he's not going to tell my wife to do anything because it ain't none of his business so it's your own wife oh excuse me a wife submits to her own husband not somebody else's husband now let's look at this word head this word is a bone of contention between normal people and evangelical feminists the husband is the head of the wife well what does that mean well it obviously 
has the concept of authority, or sounds like it, does it not? This idea of authority also includes the idea of honor, because when you respect authority, when you obey authority, you also honor that authority. But feminists run away from the idea of authority, and they just leave the word possessed with the idea of honor. Only honor without the authority, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. That's one way they try to get around this obvious verse where wives are supposed to submit to their head, who's their husband. But the way that most of them do it is they say, no, head means source, and they're big on this. Now, the theologian Wayne Grudem, in his book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which I suggested every Christian ought to read before they do anything else, was written back in the 1980s. It's still relevant today. Grudem did a computer search of kephale, which is the Greek word, and he searched not only he searched secular Greek writings. He found about five skadzillion instances of the word meaning of the word kephale, and it always meant authority. It just means authority. That's what it means. It doesn't mean honor. It doesn't mean source. The husband is the source of the wife. How can a husband be the source of the wife? Oh, that's referring back to Adam was the source of Eve because Eve was taken from his rib. Nonsense. It's talking about authority. Let me give you some scriptural examples. Ephesians 1, 21 through 22. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. So is Jesus the source of the church or is he the head of the church with authority? Colossians 1.18, he is also head of the body. Jesus is head of the body, the church, head. He has authority over the church. He's not just the source of the church. Colossians 2.10, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. He's the authority over all other authorities. 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. He's the source of every man. No, he's the head. He's the authority over every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And that, of course, man can be husband. Husband is the head of a wife, and God is the head of Christ. God is the authority of Christ. That's the economic subordination of the, of the Trinity. And by the way, people argue with that. Does that mean eternally in heaven, or does it just mean that Jesus is in an incarnate state? I don't care about that argument right now. The point is, is God is the head of Christ. He's not the source of Christ. What, is, what, is God, what are we, Arians? God is the source of Christ. He creates Christ. Come on. So the word means authority. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Jesus is the savior of the church, and obviously he saves us from our sins, so he's the savior of the body. We can make an analogy to the husband and the wife. The husband needs to save his wife. It means he needs to do everything to protect her, to cherish her, to protect her, to provide for her, deliver her from tight spots, anything he can do to get her through this veil of tears in a secure position. Remember, women need security, and they really do. They really need security. That drives them. I've spent 23 years in China trying to figure out Chinese culture and the thing. I noticed that Chinese women are, are they're sort of different than American women to a good degree. But I noticed one thing that drives them: security, money. I mean, it drives them like a like a robot with a prime directive: security. So, if you give a, a, a Christian woman security, she's going to respect you if you're a man, because then you are the savior of her, just as Jesus is the savior of His body. Now, in verse 24, Paul says, So also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Ooh, wait a minute. Doesn't that contradict what I just said about what if the husband asked the wife to watch pornography or to quit praying to God? That is not what Paul means. 
Obviously, it doesn't mean that. It means everything in the sphere of the marriage relationship. You've got to use common sense when you interpret these verses. So if it's, we're going to put our kids in this school or that school, that's a marital decision. If we're going to take this job, we're going to live in this country, city and take this job, or we're going to take that job, that's a marital decision. The wife needs to submit, assuming that they can't, if they can't come to an agreement. Of course, the ideal situation is the husband and wives talk about it and they both agree, then there's no question of submission. It, you know, they both agree. But if, if it comes to not submission, well, then, hey. I got I got a good story about this. It says good good friends of ours used to live down the street, and this was years ago. My father was still alive then, and he had in his past business life had run some chicken houses. Well, my friend decided he was going to build some chicken houses and put them in his yard. His wife was adamantly opposed to this idea, and that was a running controversy. Of course, in this little tight neighborhood of ours, we all know what's going on, you know. So we all knew about this controversy. And now this woman was a submissive wife. But she really hated the idea of chickens in her yard. I mean, she hated it. And for good reason. Well, it turns out that most of the people in the neighborhood agree with the wife and not with the husband. But the husband's an entrepreneur. You know, he wants to take risks. He's a He is an entrepreneur. I, I, I know him well. And so finally, this woman said she was going to quit arguing about it because it was getting him ticked off. You know, the husband ticked off. So she finally says, I'm not going to argue about it anymore. I am your wife, you are my husband, I submit to it. Build your chicken houses. I just ask one thing of you. Go talk to Dan Trotter, that's me, go talk to his father and ask him what it's like to have chickens in a chicken house. So my friend did that, came to my father. I was there when he did it and asked about chicken houses. Well, I knew from my father's experience with the chicken houses, it was a nightmare. He hated them. It was a disastrous business decision that my father had made and... <laughs> So he just started unloading on chicken houses to my friend, the husband. And he decided, I'm not going to do this. So you see what happened. The wife submitted to the husband and turned it over to God. And God showed the husband what he ought to do. The wife couldn't do it, but she could submit. It's a great example. Submission is a wonderful thing. And if if a wife would turn her husband over to the authority of his head, Jesus Christ, his head can deal with him when he makes bad decisions. And we still don't know whether that was a bad decision. I mean, he could have put the chicken houses in the yard and become a millionaire. Who knows? But the point is, it was her job to submit, not to make the decision. And it came out right. Now, some people take this idea of submitting to your own husband's sphere of authority and they sort of over-apply it. They say, yeah, she should submit to the husband's sphere of authority, but to nobody else, no other man. That means that a wife can't work for a male boss who's not her husband. And I first heard that, and I said, no, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. And I started thinking about that, and I said, well, now, is a wife, are all Americans subject to the authority of the President of the United States? Sure, within the constitutional sphere of his authority, yes, we're subject to the President of the United States. So that means my wife is subject to the president of the United States. Does that mean she's subject to somebody who's not her own husband? Well, I guess she is, isn't it? So does that mean she can't be a, uh, an American citizen because that makes her subject to somebody who's not her own husband? How about this? Is the wife of a Christian hus- husband subject to the elders in her church, the male elders in her church? Does that make her subject to a man who is not her own husband? Now, it's true that Elders don't have that hupotasso hierarchical authority over believers, but a believer is said to should be persuaded by the elders. It's not as strong as be subject to the elders, but still the argument still holds. Should a husband allow his wife to be persuaded by other men? That is carrying the idea too far about not working for your, not submitting to your own husband. 
you submit in the sphere of authority. If a wife submits to a male boss, it's in the sphere of business, and that should be all right as long as it doesn't conflict with the wife's duty to submit to her husband in the sphere of domestic family relations. It's all right for a woman to submit to the political authority of a governor or a president of the United States as long as that doesn't interfere with her duty to submit to her own husband or for her duty to submit to Christ for that matter. We go to Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Love your wives. Now, again, I've already said this. I'll say it again. This shows that the submission of wives was meant to be done in a loving Christian marriage. This is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about marriages in general. He's talking about Christian marriages. If people would understand this, controversies over submission would be a lot less. Because this is what you constantly hear. Oh, the Bible says a wife's supposed to love your husband. What happens if the husband beats her? You know, you always hear that. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about husbands who love their wives. How does a husband love his wife just as Christ also loved the church? This is one more example of a Christian being exhorted to imitate Christ. Earlier in Ephesians 4.32, Christians are told to imitate Christ in forgiving one another. In Ephesians 5.2, they're told to imitate Christ as Christ loved other people. And in the same verse, Ephesians 5.2, Christ gave himself up for others, and the Ephesians were also supposed to give themselves up for others. So there you have an imitation of Christ, and this is one more example. Just as Christ loved the church, husbands are to imitate that love for the church and, and love the wife in the same way. Now, how did Christ love the church? Well, his, he gave the ultimate. He died for the church. That covers everything subordinate to that. So that means husbands should die for their wives as necessary and anything under that. Serve the wives and so forth. Again, you got a husband like that? What's the problem with submission? Verse 26 says that, well, Jesus gave himself up for her, verse 25, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. That means make holy. Holy means separated from the world and dedicated to God. So that's what Jesus is doing with the church. He's separating the church from the world and dedicating the church to God, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the church is cleansed. The church is holy. Now the question is, is how is the church cleansed? By the washing of water with the word. Now, it turns out that this is a little bit controversial here. Some people say it refers to baptism. Adam Clark mentions this. Jameson Fawcett Brown mentions this. The literal Greek there says, by the laver of the water, washing by the laver of the water. By the washing of the laver with the water. That does sound like the baptismal laver. And the word there would be the baptismal formula in the name of the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. I baptize you. Well, I don't think that's true. I just think it means... Water cleanses the word of Christ to his church, cleanses the church, and that's as far as I'm going to take it. Because that interpretation emphasizes that Jesus has to speak to his church in order to cleanse her, not a baptismal formula. So Jesus cleanses the church by speaking to the church his word. Of course, now that's the scripture. I guess you could say you could refer to New Testament prophets speaking to the church, maybe so, but just to get, avoid that controversy, just to say it's the scripture, Jesus speaks to the church, and cleanses her. This, of course, if you take it to mean the baptismal font and the baptismal formula that the cleansing is done, that does not mean, of course, that Christians are saved by baptism. It just means that's a reflection, a symbol of the cleansing that is done. Now, that's Jesus in the church. 
how about the husband and the wife? Now, Paul doesn't explicitly say that, but since he's making such a tight analogy here between the two relationships, we can assume that a husband should wash his wife to cleanse her with the word, to sanctify her with the word, to make her separate from the world and dedicated to God with the word. So he is responsible to teach her the word. I've got a friend who married a Chinese wife, and she was a lot younger in the Lord than he was and doesn't know the Bible nearly as good. And by golly, he teaches her every single day that I know of. In fact, one time he was trying to teach her the relationship of the old and the new covenants and gave her a old survey of the Bible. I said, friend, maybe you better take it a little easy on her. So, but he took that he took that command seriously. He takes everything seriously about the Bible is what I admire about him. And she just sat there and she's trying to learn as fast as she can. After the church is cleansed and sanctified by the washing of the water of the word, verse 27, he, Jesus does that in order that he, Jesus, might present to himself the church in all her glory. He's washing the bride so that the bride can be clean for him. Glorious. Well, if you want a glorious church, Watchman, he's got a book called The Glorious Church. If you want a glorious church, it's got to be washed with the water of Jesus' word. That means it needs to be soaked in Scripture. Now, you take the average church today, you're not going to find that. In fact, I've been watching a bunch of Christian films over Easter, locked down because of the coronavirus pandemic. And it struck me, although I've really enjoyed the movies, and people get saved in the movies, and they're good, clean thing, and they're moral, and all, you know, they're good stuff, it's good stuff. But when the people get saved, you never hear the scripture like, you know, you're a sinner, you're an enemy of God, you need to be, you need to repent. What does repent mean? You need to believe. What does believe mean? You need to turn from your sins and turn to God. You know, the typical how you lead somebody to the Lord's not even in there. It's they, they'll say, well, I really don't know how to say this. And well, it's, it's different for everybody, but you know, just have a good feeling about, about what you're doing. I just, I feel it. I feel, you know, I know it's the Christian version of Hollywood, but you know, if you're going to spend millions of dollars making a film like that so that non-Christians can watch it and be attracted, how about let them know how to get saved? How about mention the word? Is it too hard to do that? I don't think so. But anyway, after Jesus watches the church so that he can, so the church can be presented to him in all his glory, and by the way, this presenting of a wife to the king that back then in ancient culture, that was it was usual to bring a royal bride to the king in sumptuous apparel. Psalm 45:13-14. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. Very similar, you know. A lot of our wedding traditions follow on with this. You've got that beautiful bride all dressed up in those beautiful clothes, and you got her handmaidens, the virgins the, the, that follow her, they're all dressed up too, and it's a big deal to present the bride to the husband. Well, likewise, Jesus is going to present his bride to himself in all her glory. That's why he's not going to let us go. He's the savior of the church. No coronavirus pandemic is going to wipe the church out. No idiotic antichrist government secularist humanist government like we have in the United States of America. They're not going to wipe us out. Jesus is going to present his church in all her glory to himself, having no spot or wrinkle in any such thing, holy and blameless. What does that mean, having no spot? John Gill says, quote, The allusion seems to be to the customs and practices of the Jews in their espousals. If a man espoused of a woman on condition that she had no spots in her, and afterwards spots were found in her, she was not espoused. Espoused means betrothed, basically. She came, a spot is a defect. 
You find a defect in your fiance, bye-bye. Not going to happen to us, though, because the church is not going to have any spot. John Gill says, quote, The church will then be free from all spots and blemishes, from all hypocrites and formal professors, and all heresies and heretics, from all declensions and infirmities, from all sin and iniquity. Won't that be nice? Spotless and without wrinkle. We're not going to see that in this life. We're going to see it in the next life, though. We're going to be presented to Jesus in all of our glory. We go to Ephesians 28, verse 30. So husbands also ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, if you think about it, the first woman, Eve, was taken directly from Adam's body, so Eve was a part of Adam. <laughs> their own bodies were shared. So, likewise, in a modern-day marriage, or in a marriage in Paul's day, if a husband had a wife, that wife was to him as his own body. Or it should be. Now, nobody ever harmed his own body, hated his own flesh. Nobody goes around chopping his foot off or saying nasty things about oneself. That's just not the way people do. So if you don't hate your own flesh and if your wife is your own flesh, well, then don't hate your own, don't, don't hate your own flesh. As a matter of fact, we not only refrain from doing evil to our own bodies, we actually take care of our own bodies. We feed it. We exercise it, or we're supposed to, and then when we break down because we don't exercise it, we go to the doctor. We're constantly trying to take care of our bodies. Well, likewise, a husband should constantly be trying to take care of their wife, just like he takes care of his own body. Just as Christ also does the church, Jesus is constantly nourishing the church. He cherishes the church. He loves the church. He looks out for the church. He's the Savior of the body. Jesus does that for us. Likewise, the husband ought to do that for his wife. Why? Verse 30, because we are members of his body. In other words, Christ nurses and cherishes the church. Why? Because we, the church, are members of his body. And everybody takes care of their own body. So Jesus has a body, his body is the church, and by golly, he's going to take care of it. We go to Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. This is a quotation. Verse 31 is from Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quotation from Genesis 2.24, which reads like this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A direct quote. The reason that Moses was talking about in Genesis 2 was the reason was the fact that Eve was taken from Adam's rib. Because Eve was taken from Adam's rib, therefore that shows that she is one with her husband. For that reason... A man's got to be, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, even as Adam and Eve were joined at the rib, if you will. So, likewise, a modern husband and his wife should be joined at the rib and become one flesh. And that, in order to do that, you've got to leave your father and mother to do that. This verse is a very favorite amongst Chinese, because Chinese parents absolutely control their kids. You have to see it to believe it. And that includes their marriage relationships. And I was trying to witness to a colleague of mine who never became a Christian, I was sad to say, but she was living with his, her boyfriend, and she was living with, in her boyfriend's mother's house. And that woman tried to run every millisecond of this young woman's life. So she goes to a Christian colleague's wedding. I went to the wedding, too. And it was a Western-style wedding, Christian wedding. And the, the officiant said, read this verse, A man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife. 
And afterwards, the non-Christian colleague told me, she said, I just love that wedding. I said, why? She said, because of that verse. I said, why'd you like that verse? And then, then, then I, I didn't ask her any further. I said, oh, yeah, I know why you loved it. <laughs> because of your living situation where you're being harried to death by your mother-in-law, like most Chinese couples are. It's just, like I say, you have to see it to believe it. I remember one time a Chinese mother was so intent on getting a male heir a male son, that she told her daughter, who was married to a guy who was not producing the male heir, she says, divorce him. It's all right. You can marry, marry somebody else. Have the male heir. Then after you have the son, you can divorce the second one and go back to the first one. That's okay. I, I, I heard another story of a, a, a Chinese mother looking at her, I forgot whether it was the son or the daughter, and saying, are y'all having sex? God, it's just Unbelievable. So this is a verse that really contradicts Chinese culture. It contradicts everybody's culture, actually. But, you know, if you want to stay stay out of your kids' marital relationships, if you have married children, because it ain't none of your business anymore, my friends. Your son has left his father and his mother. And so has the daughter. It doesn't say the daughter here, but it's true. They've left and they become one new union in Christ if they're Christians. Stay away from that or, if, or you're going to have in-law problems big time. This mystery is great. What mystery is great? The fact that a man leaves his mother and father and becomes joined to his wife. That's a mystery that's great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, when Paul says mystery, mystery is a word that used to be used of the mystery religions, which means a hidden truth of a ritual or a doctrine or something that was never revealed. But Paul takes the word and changes it, and he says it used to be revealed, but now it's, it used to be hidden, I'm sorry, but now it's revealed. In another audio, I went through all the verses where you connect mystery with reveal, mystery reveal, mystery made known, and I'm not going to do that here. In fact, Paul uses that term mystery so many times, that's why I don't have time to do it. He uses it of the incarnation in 1 Timothy 3.16, of the crucifixion in 1 Corinthians 2.1.2, the mystery of the crucifixion as the mystery of the incarnation. He uses it of the mystery to sum up all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.9. He uses it uh, uh, the term mystery of God's plan to include Gentiles and Jews together in the church, Ephesians 3, 3-6, Romans 11:25. following. He uses the term mystery to talk about what's going to happen with our body, the glorification of our body. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. And here he's talking about the mystery of, union, of the union of Christ and his bride. Now note that it's the union of Christ and the bride that's the mystery, that's the main point here. It's not marriage, he goes back and forth, but here he's talking about his main point is the union of Christ and his bride is the mystery marriage is the illustration of the main point. We go now to verse 33, and we'll finish up Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. That nevertheless here means, then I has however. Nevertheless, or however, I'm not going to go on and on talking about Christ and the church, is what he just said at the end of verse 32, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and his church. However, I'm not going to keep talking about that. I'm going to now I'm going to talk about husband and wife. So he does. Each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. Why? Because they're one flesh, and the wife respects her husband. So this is the summary verse. Now, it's interesting here when Paul summarizes the relationship of the husband and the wife, he says the husband is to love the wife. But, you know, nowhere else does it say the wife is supposed to love the husband. Now, that's implied. But Paul doesn't mention that. It doesn't mention that the husband is to respect his wife. Paul doesn't mention that, of course. It's implied, of course, a husband should respect his wife. But that's not what he mentions as the salient thing that they ought to do, that the spouses ought to do. The husband is to love his wife, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, I read an interesting story about a Christian counselor. That was his job. I mean, he was making, it was his profession. He was making money off of it. 
and he was having a hard time getting marriages reconciled, Christian marriages. They were having marriage problems, and they weren't getting reconciled. And one day it hit him that the thing that husbands need the most is respect, and the thing that wives need is love. And he was what he was doing was telling the the wives to love their husbands, and the wives would say, I am loving my husbands. I, I care for him. I say kind things to him. I fix him food. I give him sex. I do all that. You know, I love my husband. And finally, it occurred to him, the Bible never says that. It says respect your husband. So, And then he had this interesting analogy. He said if a man got a call from his boss, assume, let's assume it's a, a male boss, and the boss has an option of saying two things. What would the man rather hear? Option A, I love you, employee. Or B, I respect the job that you're doing. Well, obviously the answer is a, a man would rather hear, I respect you, because men love respect. And that means submission and honor and all that goes with it. Honor. Oh, you made a tough decision and it worked out. I'm so, so glad I married you. If I hadn't married you, I might have married that alcoholic scum bucket I was going with in high school, and I could have ended up on Skid Row. Respect your husband. Lots of marriage stuff that talks about wives respecting the husband. They have a hard time doing it. It's not, it's not natural. They, they're easy to love because women love to love. I mean, that's, they're made for that. But respecting, well, that's a little different. Likewise, husbands can really be proud of their wives, but they need to love their wife. Enough of that. I'm not a marriage counselor, but I just thought I'd throw that in there for for what it's worth, we're now finished with Ephesians 5. In our next audio, we'll go to Ephesians 6, the first nine verses, and take up the other two hierarchical relationships that Paul is dealing with. He dealt with husband and wife at the end of chapter 5, and in the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to deal with parents and children and masters and slaves. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoy this one.